The Mystery of Charles Dickens by Lyndon Orr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mystery of Charles Dickens. Perhaps no public man in the English-speaking world in the last century was so widely and intimately known as Charles Dickens. From his eighteenth year, when he won his first success in journalism, down through his series of brilliant triumphs in fiction, he was more and more a conspicuous figure, living in the blaze of an intense publicity. He met everyone and knew everyone, and was the companion of every kind of man and woman. He loved to frequent the caves of harmony, which Thackeray has immortalized, and he was a member of all the best bohemian clubs of London. Actors, authors, good fellows generally, were his intimate friends, and his acquaintance extended far beyond into the homes of merchants and lawyers and the mansions of the proudest nobles. Indeed, he seemed to be almost a universal friend. One remembers, for instance, how he was called in to arbitrate between Thackeray and George Augustus Sala, who had quarreled. One remembers how Lord Byron's daughter, Lady Lovelace, upon her sickbed, used to send for Dickens because there was something in his genial, sympathetic manner that soothed her. Crushing pieces of ice between her teeth and agony, she would speak to him and he would answer her in his rich, manly tones until she was comforted and felt able to endure more hours of pain without complaint. Dickens was a jovial soul. His books fairly steam with Christmas cheer and hot punch and the savor of plum puddings, very much as do his letters to his intimate friends. Everybody knew Dickens. He could not dine in public without attracting attention. When he left the dining room, his admirers would descend upon his table and carry off eggshells, orange peels, and other things that remained behind, so that they might have memorials of this much-loved writer. Those who knew him only by sight would often stop him in the street and ask the privilege of shaking hands with him. So different was he from, let us say, Tennyson, who was as great an Englishman in his way as Dickens but who kept himself aloof and saw few strangers. It is hard to associate anything like mystery with Dickens, though he was fond of mystery as an intellectual diversion, and his last unfinished novel was the mystery of Edwin Drood. Moreover, no one admired more than he those complex plots which Wilkie Collins used to weave under the influence of laudanum. But as for his own life, it seems so normal, so free from anything approaching mystery, that we can scarcely believe it to have been tinged with darker colors than those which appeared upon the surface. A part of this mystery is plain enough, the other part is still obscure, or of such a character that one does not bring it wholly to the light. It had to do with his various relations with women. The world at large thinks that it knows this chapter in the life of Dickens, and that it refers wholly to his unfortunate disagreement with his wife. To be sure, this is a chapter that is writ large in all of his biographies, and yet it is nowhere correctly told. His chosen biographer was John Forster, whose life of Charles Dickens, in three volumes, must remain a standard work. But even Forster, we may assume, through tact, has not set down all that he could, although he gives a clue. As is well known, Dickens married Miss Catherine Hogarth when he was only twenty-four. He had just published his sketches by Boz, the copyright of which he sold for one hundred pounds, and was beginning the Pickwick Papers. About this time, his publisher brought N.P. Willis down to Furnival's Inn to see the man whom Willis called a young paragraphist for the Morning Chronicle. Willis thus sketches Dickens and his surroundings. In the most crowded part of Holborn, within a door or two of the Bull and Mouth Inn, 
we pulled up at the entrance of a large building used for lawyers' chambers. I followed by a long flight of stairs to an upper story and was ushered into an uncarpeted and bleak-looking room with a deal table, two or three chairs, and a few books, a small boy, and Mr. Dickens for the contents. I was only struck at first with one thing, and I made a memorandum of it that evening as the strongest instance I had seen of English obsequiousness to employers, the degree to which the poor author was overpowered with the honor of his publisher's visit. I remember saying to myself, as I sat down on a rickety chair, My good fellow, if you were in America with that fine face and your ready quill, you would have no need to be condescended to by a publisher. Dickens was dressed very much as he has since described Dick Swiveller, minus the swell look. His hair was cropped close to his head, his clothes scant, though jauntily cut, and after changing a ragged office coat for a shabby blue, he stood by the door, collarless and buttoned up, the very personification of a close sailor to the wind. Before this interview with Willis, which Dickens always repudiated, he had become something of a celebrity among the newspaper men with whom he worked as a stenographer. As everyone knows, he had had a hard time in his early years, working in a blacking shop, and feeling too keenly the ignominious position of which a less sensitive boy would probably have thought nothing. Then he became a shorthand reporter and was busy at his work, so that he had little time for amusements. It had been generally supposed that no love affair entered his life until he met Catherine Hogarth, whom he married soon after making her acquaintance. People who are eager at ferreting out unimportant facts about important men had unanimously come to the conclusion that up to the age of twenty Dickens was entirely fancy-free. It was left to an American to disclose the fact that this was not the case, but that even in his teens he had been captivated by a girl of about his own age, inasmuch as the only reproach that was ever made against Dickens was based upon his love affairs, let us go back and trace them from this early one to the very last, which must yet, for some years, at least remain a mystery. Everything that is known about his first affair is contained in a book very beautifully printed, but inaccessible to most readers. Some years ago, Mr. William K. Bixby of St. Louis found in London a collector of curios. This man had in his stock a number of letters which had passed between a Miss Maria Beadnell and Charles Dickens, when the two were about nineteen, and a second package of letters represented a later acquaintance about 1855, at which time Miss Beadnell had been married for a long time to a Mr. Henry Lewis Winter of 12 Artillery Place, London. The copyright laws of Great Britain would not allow Mr. Bixby to publish the letters in that country, and he did not care to give them to the public here. Therefore, he presented them to the Bibliophile Society, with the understanding that 493 copies with the Bibliophile book plate were to be printed and distributed among the members of the Society. A few additional copies were struck off, but these did not bear the Bibliophile book plate. Only two copies are available for other readers and to peruse these it is necessary to visit the Congressional Library in Washington, where they were placed on July 24, 1908. These letters form two series, the first written to Miss Beadnell in or about 1829, and the second written to Mrs. Winter, formerly Miss Beadnell, in 1855. The book also contains an introduction by Henry H. Harper, who sets forth some theories which the facts, in my opinion, do not support and there are a number of interesting portraits, especially one of Miss Beadnell in 1829. A lovely girl with dark curls. Another shows her in 1855, when she writes of herself as old and fat, thereby doing herself a great deal of injustice. For although she had lost her youthful beauty, 
She was a very presentable woman of middle age, but one who would not be particularly noticed in any company. Summing up briefly these different letters, it may be said that in the first set Dickens wrote to the lady ardently, but by no means passionately. From what he says, it is plain enough that she did not respond to his feeling, and that presently she left London and went to Paris, for her family was well-to-do, while Dickens was living from hand to mouth. In the second set of letters, written long afterward, Mrs. Winter seems to have set her cap at the now famous author, but at that time he was courted by every one, and had long ago forgotten the lady who had so easily dismissed him in his younger days. In 1855, Mrs. Winter seems to have reproached him for not having been more constant in the past, but he replied, You answered me coldly and reproachfully, and so I went on my way. Mr. Harper, in his introduction, tries very hard to prove that in writing David Copperfield Dickens drew the character of Dora from Miss Beadnell. It is a dangerous thing to say from whom any character in a novel is drawn. An author takes whatever suits his purpose in circumstance and fancy and blends them all into one consistent whole, which is not to be identified with any individual. There is little reason to think that the most intimate friends of Dickens and his family were mistaken through all the years, when they were certain that the boy, husband, and the girl wife of David Copperfield were suggested by anyone save Dickens himself and Catherine Hogarth. Why should he have gone back to a mere passing fancy, to a girl who did not care for him? and who had no influence on his life, instead of picturing, as David's first wife, one whom he deeply loved, whom he married, who was the mother of his children, and who made a great part of his career, even though part which was inwardly half-tragic and hopefully mournful. Miss Beadnell may have been the original of Flora in Little Dorrit, though even this is doubtful. The character was at the time ascribed to a Miss Anna Maria Lee, whom Dickens sometimes flirted with and sometimes caricatured. When Dickens came to know George Hogarth, who was one of his colleagues on the staff of the Morning Chronicle, he met Hogarth's daughters, Catherine, Georgina, and Mary, and at once fell ardently in love with Catherine, the eldest and prettiest of the three. He himself was almost girlish, with his fair complexion and light wavy hair, so that the famous sketch by Maclise has a remarkable charm. Yet nobody could really say with truth that any one of the three girls was beautiful. Georgina Hogarth, however, was sweet-tempered and of a motherly disposition. It may be that, in a fashion, she loved Dickens all her life, as she remained with him after he parted from her sister, taking the utmost care of his children, and looking out with unselfish fidelity for his many needs. It was Mary, however, the youngest of the Hogarths, who lived with the Dickenses during the first twelve months of their married life. To Dickens she was like a favorite sister, and when she died very suddenly, in her eighteenth year, her loss was a great shock to him. It was believed for a long time, in fact, until their separation, that Dickens and his wife were extremely happy in their home life. His writings glorified all that was domestic and paid many tender tributes to the joys of family affection. When the separation came, the whole world was shocked, and yet rather early in Dickens's married life, there was more or less infelicity in his retrospections of an active life Mr. John Bigelow writes a few sentences which are interesting, for their frankness, and which give us certain hints. Mrs. Dickens was not a handsome woman, though stout, hearty, and matronly. There was something a little doubtful about her eye, and I thought her endowed with a temper that might be very violent when roused, though not really rousable. Mrs. Caulfield told me that a Miss Temin, I think that is the name, was the source of the difficulty between Mrs. Dickens and her husband. 
She played in private theatricals with Dickens, and he sent her a portrait in a brooch, which met with an accident requiring it to be sent to the jewelers to be mended. The jeweler, noticing Mr. Dickens's initials, sent it to his house. Mrs. Dickens's sister, who had always been in love with him and was jealous of Miss Temin, told Mrs. Dickens of the brooch, and she mounted her husband with comb and brush. This, no doubt, was Mrs. Dickens's version in the main. A few evenings later, I saw Miss Temin at the Haymarket Theatre playing with Buckstone and Mr. and Mrs. Charles Matthews. She seemed rather a small cause for such a serious result, passably pretty and not much of an actress. Here in one passage we have an intimation that Mrs. Dickens had a temper that was easily roused, that Dickens himself was interested in an actress, and that Miss Hogarth had always been in love with him and was jealous of Miss Temin. Some years before this time, however, there had been growing in the mind of Dickens a certain formless discontent, something to which he could not give a name, yet which cast over him the shadow of disappointment. He expressed the same feeling in David Copperfield when he spoke of David's life with Dora. It seemed to come from the fact that he had grown to be a man while his wife had still remained a child. A passage or two may be quoted from the novel, so that we may set them beside passages in Dickens's own life, which we know to have referred to his own wife, and not to any such nebulous person as Mrs. Winter. The shadow I have mentioned that was not to be between us any more, but was to rest wholly on my heart. How did that fall? The old unhappy feeling pervaded my life. It was deepened, if it were changed at all, but it was as undefined as ever, and addressed me like a strain of sorrowful music, faintly heard in the night. I loved my wife dearly, but the happiness I had vaguely anticipated once was not the happiness I enjoyed, and there was always something wanting. What I missed I still regarded as something that had been a dream of my youthful fancy, that was incapable of realization, that I was now discovering to be so, with some natural pain, as all men did, but that it would have been better for me if my wife could have helped me more, and shared the many thoughts in which I had no partner, and that this might have been I knew. What I am describing slumbered and half awoke and slept again in the innermost recesses of my mind. There was no evidence of it to me. I knew of no influence it had in anything I said or did. I bore the weight of all our little cares and all my projects. There can be no disparity in marriage, like unsuitability of mind and purpose. These words I remembered. I had endeavored to adapt Dora to myself and found it impractical. It remained for me to adapt myself to Dora, to share with her what I could, and be happy, to bear on my own shoulders what I must, and be still happy. Thus wrote Dickens in his fictitious character and of his fictitious wife. Let us see how he wrote and how he acted in his own person and of his real wife. As early as 1856, he showed a curious and restless activity, as of one who was trying to rid himself of unpleasant thoughts. Mr. Forrester says that he began to feel a strain upon his invention, a certain disquietude and a necessity for jotting down memoranda in notebooks, so as to assist his memory and his imagination. He began to long for solitude. He would take long aimless rambles into the country, returning at no particular time or season. He once wrote to Forrester, I have had dreadful thoughts of getting away somewhere altogether by myself. If I could have managed it, I think I might have gone to the Pyrenees for six months. I have visions of living for half a year or so in all sorts of inaccessible places, and of opening a new book therein. A floating idea of going up above the snow line and living in some astonishing convent hovers over me. What do these cryptic utterances mean? At first, both in his novel and in his letters, they are obscure, 
but before long, in each, they become very definite. In 1856, we find these sentences among his letters. The old days, the old days. Shall I ever, I wonder, get the frame of mind back as it used to be then? Something of it, perhaps, but never quite as it used to be. I find that the skeleton in my domestic closet is becoming a pretty big one. His next letter draws the veil and shows plainly what he means. Poor Catherine and I are not made for each other, and there is no help for it. It is not only that she makes me uneasy and unhappy, but that I make her so too, and much more so. We are strangely ill-assorted for the bond that exists between us. Then he goes on to say that she would have been a thousand times happier if she had been married to another man. He speaks of incompatibility and a difference of temperaments. In fact, it is the same old story with which we have become so familiar, and which is both as old as the hills and as new as this morning's newspaper. Naturally, also, things grow worse rather than better. Dickens comes to speak half-jocularly of the plunge and calculates as to what effect it will have on his public readings. He kept back the announcement of the plunge until after he had given several readings. Then, on April 29, 1858, Mrs. Dickens left his home. His eldest son went to live with the mother, but the rest of the children remained with the father. While his daughter, Mary, nominally presided over the house, in the background, however, Georgina Hogarth, who seemed all through her life to have cared for Dickens more than for her sister, remained as a sort of guide and guardian for his children. This arrangement was a private matter and should not have been brought to public attention. But it was impossible to suppress all the gossip about so prominent a man. Much of the gossip was exaggerated, and when it came to the notice of Dickens, it stung him so severely as to lead him into issuing a public justification of his course. He published a statement in Household Words, which led to many other letters in other periodicals, and finally a long one from him, which was printed in the New York Tribune, addressed to his friend Mr. Arthur Smith. Dickens afterward declared that he had written this letter as a strictly personal and private one, in order to correct false rumors and scandals. Mr. Smith naturally thought that the statement was intended for publication, but Dickens always spoke of it as the violated letter. By his allusions to a difference of temperament and to incompatibility, Dickens no doubt meant that his wife had ceased to be to him the same companion that she had been in days gone by. As in so many cases, she had not changed, while well, he had. He had grown out of the sphere in which he had been born, associated with blacking boys and quilt printers, and had become one of the great men of his time, whose genius was universally admired. Mr. Bigelow saw Mrs. Dickens as she really was, a commonplace woman endowed with the temper of a vixen, and disposed to outbursts of actual violence when her jealousy was roused. It was impossible that the two could have remained together, when in intellect and sympathy they were so far apart. There is nothing strange about their separation, except the exceedingly bad taste with which Dickens had made it a public affair. It is safe to assume that he felt the need of a different mate, that he found one is evident enough from the hints and bits of innuendo that are found in the writings of his contemporaries. He became a pleasure lover, but more than that, he needed one who could understand his moods and match them, one who could please his tastes and one who could give him the admiration which he felt to be his due. For he was always anxious to be praised, and his letters are full of anecdotes relating to his love of praise. One does not wish to follow out these clues too closely. It is certain that neither Miss Beadnell as a girl nor Mrs. Winter as a matron made any serious appeal to him. The actresses who have been often mentioned in connection with his name were, for the most part, mere passing favorites. 
The woman in his life was Dora, made him feel the same incompleteness that he has described in his best-known book. The companion to whom he clung in his later years was neither a light-minded creature like Miss Beadnell, nor an undeveloped, high-tempered woman like the one he married, nor a mere domestic, friendly creature like Georgina Horworth. Ought we to venture upon a quest which shall solve this mystery in the life of Charles Dickens? In his last will and testament, drawn up and signed by him about a year before his death, first paragraph reads as follows. I, Charles Dickens, of Gadshill Place, Hingham, in the county of Kent, hereby revoke all my former wills and codicils, and declare this to be my last will and testament. I give the sum of one thousand pounds, free of legacy duty, to Miss Ellen Lawless Turnin, late of Houghton Place, Amptill Square, in the county of Middlesex. In connection with this, read Mr. John Bigelow's careless jottings made some fifteen years before. Remember the Miss Temin, about whose name he was not quite certain, the Hogarth sisters' dislike of her, and the mysterious figure in the background of the novelist's later life. Then consider the first bequest in his will, which leaves a substantial sum to one who is neither a relative nor a subordinate, but, may we assume, more than an ordinary friend? End of Mystery of Charles Dickens By Lyndon Orr Read by April 6090, California, United States of America